the taxi situation in Tallinn was just horrible. They wouldn't show up on time, their quality was poor, the prices were high. I literally spent the next four months going to the taxi stands in Tallinn and trying to sign up the drivers one by one. You're stuck to this one taxi company, you need to pay them a monthly fee, they don't guarantee you any income, but what if you would have a no-risk proposition? You could just download this app, you only pay if you actually get any rides, to which 90% of them immediately said, get the fuck out of my car. <laughs> Welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. You're listening to the UK Startup Podcast with me, Dan Murray-Serta. We bring you incredible stories and actionable advice from the founders of the world's most exciting companies. Today, I'm talking to Marcus Willig, the founder of ride-hailing app Bolt, which he started when he was 19 and turned into a billion-dollar company by the time he was 25, the youngest unicorn founder in Europe at the time. Mind you, he's still only 27. Now, Bolt lets users do everything from rent a car to use an electric scooter or hail a taxi. You know what? I'll let Marcus fill you in. So today, uh, Bolt is the fastest growing mobility company in the world. Uh, we have more than 50 million customers on the platform. We operate in more than 40 countries and we've raised more than $600 million of funding with a team of about 2,000 people. Very, very massive growth over the last, last couple of years. In terms of services that we provide, we have three main categories. So first of all, we have ride hailing, where we're the biggest European player. Uh, second, we have rentals, which for us includes everything from scooter sharing to e-bikes, and we're launching uh, some more products soon, where again, we're the largest European operator in terms of number of scooters that we actually deploy in 2021. We're more than 130,000 electric scooters on the streets of, of Europe this year. Uh, and then thirdly, we have the delivery part of the business, where we utilize a lot of the infrastructure we've built up for moving people to also move goods. So everything from restaurant delivery to grocery delivery, uh, and we're the fastest growing food delivery company in Europe now as well. So very, very rapid growth across all of these three verticals. Okay, okay, impressive stuff. But where did it all begin? Where do you get the inspiration or even inclination to begin an entrepreneurial journey that ends with taking on tech leviathans like Uber? Probably had something intrinsic uh, interest to uh, start something of my own uh, from a very early age. But I think what got it even accelerated was that uh, in 2004, uh, Skype was founded and four of the original engineers were in Estonia. And then my older brother, Martin, was one of the early employees there. It really changed also my perspective and probably for a lot of other young kids in Estonia as well, that you could really build uh, a world-class, huge product with millions of users from tiny Estonia in just a couple of years. What do you think about, you know, coming from a, a Soviet legacy as well? Did that affect your childhood at all? I mean, do you even remember knowing what you wanted to become as a child? Uh, absolutely. Uh, as, as a kid, I, I really remember that I just wanted to be a scientist. I was uh, always into, into technology and thinking how to apply to make a difference in the world. A lot of my other friends uh, were somehow thinking what, what they wanted to do. But for me, it seemed always a very clear path. Fair enough. Okay. So um, you were pitching to schools whilst you were still in school, right? Sure. Uh, so I started to get into um, basically web, web development when I was about 14, 15. Uh, first of all, started to do small websites for local businesses, which was just, first of all, an in interesting sort of hobby and then the good education, but also it was a great way to make some extra money as a student. But then uh, when I was nearing the end of high school, I really wanted to start my own company and do something more serious and actually build a product. So the first idea I was looking into was education. At the time, all schools in Estonia were using a pretty nice system that was fully online to have all the grades and homeworks. But uh, in 2011, it didn't have a mobile app. 
because smartphones were just starting to appear in Estonia. So I figured that I'll uh, build a mobile interface for it and probably spent a year on it, but unfortunately realized that uh, schools are not the best type of clients and eventually had to wind it down. And how old were you when you started building this first company? So at the time I was probably 17. I was still in high school and doing this as a sort of side uh, hustle, but uh, after a year realized that probably better just to finish school and then take on something more serious after. And that's exactly what you did, right? So you're 17, you've had an idea, you have um, tried to get it to market and, and experienced basically your first setback of understanding some of the challenges that happen when you put out products into the real world, decided to finish school. So did you finish school and what did you do next? So at the very last year in, in Estonia, the, you're finishing high school when you're about 18, 19. Everybody was studying for exams. The last semester I was thinking that I'm uh, not that committed to the academic path anyway, so I wasn't too worried about studying for those and rather took on those three, four months to actually uh, really start the company seriously. So by that time, I'd been looking at very different industries. I wanted to be pretty systematic about it. The only things that were really, really clear for me were that it needed to be in technology. I really wanted it to be a consumer product. And it uh, needed in some ways to make the world a better place. But other than that, I was pretty agnostic of which space to get into. So after uh, education, when I was researching which fields to do, transportation really seemed to tick all the boxes for me. And over time, I got more and more interested and emotionally attached to the field as well. After I, I saw how big the problems were. Transportation in most countries is the second or the third largest consumer spending category there is. So it's hundreds of billions of dollars that's being spent on transportation by, by consumers every year. But what they get for it is not really great. You first of all have massive traffic. People are spending hours every day just commuting. Then second, massive traffic accidents, vast majority of which are being caused by private cars. Uh, then you have all the emissions, uh, just all, all the climate impact from transportation is, is quite massive. Not to mention how it impacts our cities. Uh, our cities are mostly designed to be for cars. Uh, when you think about it in terms of the pure land, land area that's being reserved for car lanes, parking, and so on. This equation doesn't make sense. We we're putting so much money into it, then the value proposition isn't nice. And then when you started to look at what was happening already in the early 2010 and 11, it was clear that there's massive change going to come over the next couple of decades here, which is, first of all, electric cars. Uh, then you, that electric cars, all that infrastructure enables small electric vehicles, whether that's scooters, e-bikes, mopeds, all types of different vehicles. Uh, third, the most interesting for me was that you could suddenly make all of these assets shared. So that instead of everybody needing to buy their own car, which was the norm for 100 years, suddenly you could have these shared fleets of, of vehicles across the city. So it's very rare to see such a large industry as transportation go through such a massive shift so so quickly. So, so I really realized that's probably the space to be. Uh, and it doesn't even matter exactly where we start out. Let's start out somewhere and then over time see what we can build this into. Yeah, it's super interesting because I guess just starting on the on the timeline, right? You've got Uber starts in 2009. I think Lyft is around 2012. So like you're really, really early in this space. And had um, Uber not actually, you know, have they come to Europe? Yeah, I'm like obviously in Europe, but I can't quite remember along my timeline. And what were you thinking at the time, right? Because you're talking about a hungry San Francisco-based titan mopping up funding all over the world. So I would love to know how a scrappy, is it 19-year-old at the time, thinks about this kind of challenge and what you're actually going to be facing if you even start to become successful. 
Well, at the time, we need to remember that actually the internet space back then was, was so much smaller. Historically, at, at that moment, uh, if a company had raised 20, 30, 50 million dollars, they were generally the industry leader. And then most VCs wouldn't even touch anybody else in the space. They thought that that industry is basically done. When we started, there were actually wasn't, weren't any companies that had raised that much funding in 2012 and 13. So uh, it seemed like that there was plenty of opportunity uh, to grow and it wasn't yet clear who, who the winners are going to be. But then, of course, two years in, Uber suddenly raised a gigantic uh, amount of money. I believe the round was about 300 million. Uh, and then suddenly no VCs were willing to back us. So that really changed the whole landscape. But by that time, we had already launched the first couple of cities and uh, were doing pretty well. So, uh, so that really, really didn't uh, change our view on things. Yeah, that makes sense. And what were your first funding rounds then? The, the beginning was extremely humble. So uh, as a 19-year-old in Estonia, uh, there wasn't that much capital available. I, first of all, just even tried to get a technical co-founder on board, which uh, was a big struggle for the first six months. I, I couldn't find anyone until eventually we found a freelancer who was willing to help us build the first prototype for about 5,000 euros, which uh, looking back seems pretty affordable, but at the time was way over my student budget of a couple of hundred euros. So uh, I just really had, had to go to my, my parents, my older brother, and try to pitch them to lend me or invest this money, which they luckily did. Uh, and that, that's how we got started. Okay, so how, how would you describe Bolt to someone who'd never heard of it at the time? What were you, what were you out pitching? What were you saying? So the start was, was very straightforward. I literally started Googling, okay, how do you start a startup? And I wanted to uh, avoid all the mistakes that uh, other, other entrepreneurs were doing. And the number one advice was first validate the market, talk to customers and don't start to build before that. Uh, so I just, uh, first of all, made a survey, sent it out uh, on social media and, and to my school emailing list, and more than 600 people replied. And everybody said that the current taxi situation in Tallinn was just horrible. They wouldn't show up on time, their quality was poor, the prices were high, uh, you couldn't pay with the card, and so on. But then I, I literally spent the next four months, just every day after school, going to the taxi stands in Tallinn and trying to sign up the drivers one by one. Uh, and I was just pitching them an idea, really. I was just saying that, hey, you're currently here stuck to this one taxi company. You need to pay them a monthly fee. They don't guarantee you any income. But what if you would have a no-risk proposition that you could just download this app, you could get extra trips, you only pay if you actually get any rides. It's a much better uh, pricing structure for you. To which 90% of them immediately said, uh, get the fuck out of my car. <laughs> I don't want to waste any time on this kid. The start wasn't really great, but after months and months of this, I, I got enough traction and validation that I, I saw that it still makes sense to continue. You had quite a tough market to sell into, right? So, you know, the taxi drivers telling you to fuck off, etc. Are there any particular stories that, you know, really stand out in your mind? Were there, and also, were there any particular aha moments where you're like, actually, kind of think this could work. I just need to do it like this. Overall, when we look at how we actually got to where we are today, uh, the path was very messy. But I think what kept us on it very much was that we had this one view of where we wanted things to be. From day one, when we analyzed the problem, we realized that private cars are at the root of the issue. So we were pretty agnostic of what kind of supply uh, to work with, whether that's going to be taxi drivers, taxi companies, private drivers, electric scooters. What we realized was that our real common enemy here is, is the private car. And uh, we need to come up with a better alternative to that. What that meant was that in the beginning, we were just trying to iterate and figure out which of these is, is the best one to, to actually uh, deliver to customers. And uh, we just started iterating through them one by one. 
So how that worked was that exactly on, on the first months, we, we went on the streets of Tallinn, uh, me and my brother, we tried to sign up the drivers and that didn't end up getting too much traction. Then next up, we tried to sell to the taxi companies. So we actually built the full-fledged dispatching software and tried to sell it to all local companies that they would get on board, uh, which unfortunately worked uh, quite well in Estonia. So we did manage to get the major taxi companies on board. They all joined the platform. And because they added the cars, then the marketplace started to work. Because it's usually very tricky as a chicken and egg problem. How do you get the drivers on board and then the customers as well? But because all the taxi companies joined, that got us over this first threshold. But what we then uh, later tried to do was that we raised our first funding round of about 1 million euros uh, and then tried to expand with that taxi dispatching model to other places as well. So we, we tried about 10 countries, all of which failed. And the last drop for me was that I was in Serbia, in Belgrade, meeting one of the local taxi companies. And halfway through the meeting, I just realized that these guys are, are essentially mafia. They don't really care at all what happens to the customers. They don't care about what happens to the drivers. The guy literally had a revolver on, on the table and a big safe in the corner of his office. So, I mean, <laughs> he, he just wasn't paying any attention to what, what we were selling him. That's when I decided that, okay, let, let's drop working with these legacy taxi companies who have no, no alignment with customers whatsoever uh, and focus on the drivers who actually care. So we started off with taxi drivers. It was hard in the beginning, but fundamentally it was hard because the taxi companies were basically pressuring them not to work with us. That was really the root cause. It wasn't that most of the time the taxi drivers didn't really see the benefit of cutting out the middleman and going straight to the customer. It was just that the, the taxi companies, which were oftentimes associated with mafia, were just telling them you cannot do it. If you do it, you're going to get in trouble, lose your job or, or worse. And after we got to a decent enough scale and also regulatory climate changed and it improved, then we actually saw a massive influx of drivers and the market changed very quickly. So it was more sort of a gradual transition in all of these markets. Join us after this quick break where we'll be talking all about growing pains and securing funding. Oh, and also what happens when your fledging company is banned from one of Europe's larger cities, London. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So in the early days of, of building a company like this, what were the hardest challenges you faced? What were the biggest decisions? What were the things that, you know, inevitably you messed up because we all do and that's an impossible thing to avoid? Where, where do you reflect on your biggest learnings at the early part of your journey? Probably the, the single biggest mistake was in, in hiring. So there's a saying that the first 10 people uh, define how successful the startup is going to be. And in many ways, that's true. But what happened with us was that out of the first 10 people we hired, I had to let go seven of them. So it was really, it was really massive change in the first year of the company. And the root cause of that was that I was just overly optimistic about people. As a first-time founder, first-time hiring people, I, I presumed everybody's going to be equally enthusiastic and hardworking as I was. But I very quickly learned that's not the case at all, uh, that some people don't really want to change their ways. They're just not as, as excited. And it was a hard transition, but... I think it was a strong lesson from the first year that we took with us. And luckily, the, the remaining three people were just working together so well uh, that we managed to carry through those tough times and, and build the company to what it is today. How did you approach those those moments? So did you have any mentors, anyone that you could ask about how to handle a situation like this? I've always actually uh, been more relying on, uh, on great books uh, in, in situations like this, uh, whether it's some, some of the sort of standard startup books or management books, uh, and then just trying to take all the best bits from those and then come up with my own solutions to things. But I remember very clearly that it was a big conflict because on one hand, as a first-time founder, I didn't really want to make the emotionally tough choices of letting go people that you know still seem to be putting in decent effort. But then on the other hand, uh, I was extremely ambitious from, from the start of we really want to make a lasting impact and, and really make transportation better here. And uh, by carrying these people with the company, we're not going to get there. So ultimately, I just had to make the tough call and grow as a person. Of course, you know, ultimately, it's a tough thing to do, but it's better for both sides to be just clear and upfront about it and do these firings rather sooner than later. For sure. Um, and I also heard a rumor that your parents did customer support, right? So they weren't two of the people that you fired, I assume. <laughs> Uh, no, no. Luckily, they were on a, a temporary contract for the first couple of months. <laughs> they don't still do customer support, right? <laughs> no. Uh, unfortunately, they only helped me with sales the first couple of months. 
Fair enough. Okay. So you're up against crazy big competitors, obviously, right? So um, how did you think about that when you were starting out? And how do you sort of operate and think about that inside the company? We are operating in probably the most competitive tech industry there has been at least in the last uh, last 10 years. When we purely look at it in terms of number of players, intensity, what they're doing, funding raised, and so on. So from day one, we've had to operate in this environment and build up the company with a kind of culture that uh, is able to thrive there. Uh, so for us, what, what that boiled down to was that we really took a very analytical view to understand what do customers care about in this space. It's uh, what's the price? How fast am I getting it? And then thirdly, it's, it's the quality of the service. So we really just focused on those three parameters and, and did everything we could to beat out others there. And what we realized was that in transportation, but actually in many other fields, cost is, uh, is a crucial component of this. Because if we can run the company at the more frugal level, uh, we can pass on all of those savings to the suppliers and to the customers. And it doesn't matter how big the other platform is, what matters is how large are their costs relative to the value of the ride. So what we realize is that we have a big advantage thanks to the culture, thanks to the location of where we were, and so on, that we could just operate this platform at a level that nobody else could match. And that's still today one of the core pillars of why we're successful. So just drivers make more money with us, customers pay less for exactly the same service or even better service. Yeah, and what happened in London in 2017 that forced you to shut down then? So London actually was a pretty monumental shift for how we thought about the company and the expansion, because until that point, we had only gone into quite low regulation markets. So, so effectively, these were countries where the drivers were regulated and the platforms were, were just information providers that had no liability, no requirements whatsoever. What uh, most of those governments had thought about was that if we set the base standard on all the drivers, then it doesn't really matter how would they get their trips. Uh, and London actually is very unique in this regard that they actually have quite a lot of requirements on the platform instead, not on the driver level. Uh, so that was something that we uh, actually took us quite a lot of time to adjust to and then to actually sort of take over these responsibilities that normally cities had covered to uh, actually take on that burden on us and, and offer that level of service. But uh, actually, when we look at it now, I think it was a great thing that we've now taken most of those practices in terms of quality and applied them globally to other places as well. Yeah. So, I mean, in that lesson, like what has actually been the biggest challenge that you face with scaling? In terms of scaling, the single biggest issue has probably been hiring. How do we find great talent? Because again, when we look at Europe, it's not like there's a lot of massive tech companies around. In the US, you have these companies worth uh, one, two trillion, tens of thousands of employees. There's a great base of people to hire from. But in Europe, that's not really the case. The largest European companies a few years ago were still in a almost exclusively below 10 billion. And the teams were relatively small as well. So just it was very hard to tap into the kind of experience we needed. Yeah, that makes sense. What has been the biggest uh, amount of, of resistance or regression almost that you face to what you're actually trying to do? On very multiple fronts. First, I think that it's been the taxi drivers and the taxi companies who, again, in very many countries had just corrupt ties even to the local officials, which basically had, had created this sort of... a a uh, market where you just couldn't enter. Like even if you had the best intentions, you wanted to bring a far superior product to the market, you just could not do it. So that took us many, many years to actually overcome and, and fight that system. Second, I think again, was in terms of fundraising, because most VCs in Europe uh, just three, four years ago 
were of the opinion that uh, most internet spaces just have one one winner and that's it. There's no point to to try to back anybody else because it's going to end up being a global monopoly. Uh, and that was a massive paradigm shift uh, for us to try to convince them that it's not the case here. Because they were looking at search engines, they were looking at social media, with Google and Facebook winning out and everybody else in Europe dying out. But we had the confidence that this is not going to be the case in transport, which nobody bought into. So, so that forced us to uh, find investors that were not the traditional VCs for the first first five years, actually. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about fundraising because, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, you raised a lot of money now. Take us a little bit through your fundraising journey, if you don't mind. And this is super useful because uh, so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs as well. And many of the guests that come on the show, especially the unicorn founders, you know, it is a very traditional, just the straight up VCs. There seems to be one simple way to do it. And that's not really the case. So take us through your masterclass of fundraising, please. Absolutely. Uh, we have a pretty extraordinary story in that regard, which I'll probably split into three phases. The first one was that uh, Uber raised this gigantic uh, round of funding of about 300 million, after which no VC in Europe was really seriously considering us. We, we probably met with almost every VC and sort of professional investor in, in technology space uh, in those years, and none of them were willing to invest. They, they just saw that this space is going to be dominated by Uber. Uh, we like the team, but you guys should just probably pivot to something else. This is not going to work out. That's the time when I thought that, hey, but we have the metrics. We, we actually understand the fundamentals of the market better than anyone. And we know there's going to be an opportunity here. We know that there's many markets we can win. And even in some others, there's plenty of room to be a second very large player as well. So we had that confidence internally, which nobody else bought into. So uh, at the time, I had two choices, like, okay, either shut down the company or find alternative sources of capital. So we actually went and tried to raise money from all sorts of not the tier one uh, VCs, uh, which was traditional investors like in Estonia. Like we had some investors who were only in real estate before or, or only in uh, railways or like completely <laughs> random traditional industries. Uh, who uh, made small tickets of 300,000, 500,000 euros, something like that, which kept the company afloat in the, in the first three, four years. Then the next stage was that uh, we were already at a pretty significant scale, but still no VCs were willing to back us. Uh, that was in 2017. So then we actually tried to reach out to other strategic players, not VCs again, and hope that maybe they would be of a different opinion. Uh, so then we first of all managed to convince Didi, which is the largest ride-hailing company in China, to invest uh, in the company because obviously they saw that they can beat Uber and probably others as well. Uh, so they also invested in Lyft and many other companies in the world, and we were their bet for Europe. Second, we managed to actually get the funding from Daimler. So when no VCs were willing to touch us, actually, uh, it was the traditional OEMs uh, who actually wrote a pretty massive ticket of more than the 70 million euros in the company, which really accelerated their growth to a next level. And then probably it was 2019 that the bigger shift occurred when everybody realized that actually Uber isn't going to win everywhere. There's actually a far better chance for these local champions. And that's when the whole market really changed and, uh, and we got access to these sort of traditional tech pools of capital and uh, when we raised most of our funding in the last two years. So how do you persevere in the face of funding problems and why turn from expanding in the UK or US to setting up shop in Africa? We'll cover all that and more after this short break. Back in a mo.
So when you're going to VCs and uh, being heard no so much, when you're going to all these traditional sources of finance uh, and, and constantly hearing no and having to like re rethink and innovate uh, where to get your money from, how do you sort of mix these things together to, well, to keep your shit together realistically? From day one, I think we had this opinion that we need the company to be self-sustainable. So we uh, thought that if we're able to raise funding, that's great. We can accelerate the growth. But we always need to operate at the level where we can finance ourselves and, and just turn off the growth if we need to. What those first years then did was, was really just enforce that culture even more. So, so now I think it's actually one of our biggest competitive advantages, which was that we had to get through all of those tough first four or five years without almost any external funding against the toughest competitor in the world. So when we did finally get access to funding, it was just so much easier because we had already ingrained that culture so deeply in the, in the company. So now when we look at any product we launch, I, I've uh, not come across any company really across the world who would be operating at this level of efficiency and frugality as, as we have, just due to the sort of intrinsic nature plus the environment we're in that, that caused that. And again, I, I expect for many founders, this might be extremely uh, difficult, but somehow that really fit my personality as well. And that's exactly how I would want to run the company. And I would probably ingrain this exact same culture if I was doing this all over again. Yeah, that's amazing. And also helps you sleep at night, right? Yeah, I, I think I, I just got lucky that that really matches with my personality as well. That I, I'm a very frugal guy and, and this industry, that's exactly what you need. So you're not driving around the streets of Tallinn in a Ferrari with a bolt sticker on, right? <laughs> I don't even have a driver's license. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, I mean, I guess in that respect, you really are, you really are your ideal customer. Uh, I, I try to be, but uh, actually it really com comes back to what we're trying to achieve as a company overall, which is that we believe there is a future where you don't need every single person to buy a private car, but there's a better alternative, which is that we can actually share this fleet of vehicles. It's better for the environment, better for the cities. It's, it's more affordable, more accessible. And if I don't live that uh, as an example, then who will? I love that. That's hilarious. You took me totally by surprise by saying that. It's brilliant. Okay. You seem to have taken quite a novel strategy taking on, uh, well, I guess what would uh, be unusual to a lot of people by taking a market like Africa. So what was your rationale there? Actually, again, we took a pretty uh, systematic approach there, which was that we had by then established ourselves in the first about 10 cities in Europe. We were competing with Uber. We saw we're already doing great because the thesis was uh, working out exactly as we expected, that if we as a platform take a smaller cut from every transaction, then uh, that's great for everybody. The drivers make more money, they provide a better service, the customers just pay less for, for the great experience that they get. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so we wanted to replicate that model as quickly as possible. So, so we literally made a table of a few hundred cities in the world and tried to just look at, at the different parameters in terms of size, uh, regulation, what's the availability of transport there, what's the competition and so on. And we really realized that Africa was top of the list. So it really ticked all the boxes. First of all, massive unemployment. In many of our countries, it's, it's 25, 30%. So you have literally millions of people uh, eager to, to do work and they can't. Second was that the availability of public transport was really poor. People didn't really have other modes of getting around. Uh, third, car ownership was extremely low. So, so people didn't have, even have a car. So there was really no alternative how to move. And lastly, the regulation was, was very open as well. So we saw that we could actually get going relatively quickly. So all of those things combined, we went from sort of creating this table, making this analysis to launching the first cities. It was a matter of weeks. And what happened was, uh, was almost immediate, just spike and, and virality there, because uh, the market was just so desperate for a better solution. 
And what happened was that in less than 18 months, our African markets became a far bigger contributor to the business than, than all the European markets combined. That's an amazing story when you look back on the strategy and then the conviction to execute. But were there any wobbles in between? Were your investors telling you to focus on Europe and America and forget about Africa where you had to convince them? Or was it just all like, well, you guys have executed so far, so we trust you? Well, maybe one of the reasons was we didn't really have any of those investors, right? <laughs> so, so basically, we, we had only raised these very small uh, tickets from angel investors in Estonia or traditional investors in areas like real estate railways who had no idea about uh, our business, really. So I think that uh, from day one just made it so that the founding team was really the, the last people who had to make a decision. There was nobody else to rely on, nobody else to ask for advice. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. What's the closest that you've come to failing as a company then? In, in some ways, we've been all on this borderline for the first five, six years, really, because we almost had no money in the bank and we had to operate with our own cash flows and it was extremely slim margins for us. So every week, every month, really, uh, back then was, was a big struggle because if something happened, whatever, uh, competitor invests more, regulatory jumps change, and we have revenue drop, that would have immediately meant we, we would have started uh, letting people go and it would have been very tough to recover. But luckily, we, we got through that period. And uh, after we already had a decent cash buffer in the bank, it, it just helped us uh, have a much longer term horizon and plan for these bad scenarios as well. It's It's been significantly easier the last three years compared to the first five. Got it. What keeps you up at night today then? It's primarily thinking about what new products uh, we should build, because the hard thing for any company is to retain their focus. On one hand, you can only do a few things really well. But on the other hand, we, we see that transportation is a field where just doing one thing isn't enough, because when you're trying to replace people's private car, you need to have the full package of solutions for them. That it isn't enough if you only uh, service the short trips better, for example, with electric scooters or the medium trips better, like with ride hailing, but you need to cover the full spectrum. So that's something where we need to be very careful in what kind of products we build and how we build them so that we don't dilute the company's focus too much, but we, we still serve this main mission and then really build a compelling alternative. It makes sense. So moving into the last period of the interview, really, I want to know what kind of things you would you'd go back and tell your 19-year-old self knowing what you know now. The single most important uh, recommendation would probably be to trust myself more. Looking back, uh, surprisingly, most of the things that we got right were the things that I had big conviction in immediately when I started the company. But I think while we were executing, I often got contradictory advice uh, from people. And, and I think we actually uh, just, I didn't have the confidence to, to trust myself yet uh, at the time. So, so, for example, uh, many investors were telling us that, like, you should follow this traditional path, uh, which generally meant that you should expand to the UK, US, other large markets. But I was looking at it and realizing that actually this service adds so much less value in those developed markets rather than the developing markets in terms of consumer needs. And also the competition is, uh, is far lower here. Uh, and actually the markets have grown so much that uh, with uh, the economy growing and smartphones uh, getting this high penetration, uh, actually Central Eastern Europe and Africa are gigantic markets. Like you, you can build a $10 billion, $20 billion company here uh, without going to these other places. But unfortunately, we didn't have the confidence back then to commit to that immediately. So we did spend probably six to 12 months trying to pursue these other large markets, uh, which obviously failed. And then we reverted back to the strategy that of course made so much more sense for us. 
Got it. What have you learned about being a good CEO? People matter. We started off with two low standards in terms of hiring, and we've been trying to raise the bar ever since. And really, that, that makes all the difference. Uh, it's better to have less people, but better people, smaller teams. That enables you to trust them, which uh, gives them autonomy. They can make faster decisions on their own without needing to check with anyone. And this, this requires constant work. It's extremely hard to find 2,000 talented, hardworking people. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I try, I tried very hard to uh, have learned that lesson as well myself in my company. What about your your weak spots, your blind spots? So, as a CEO, um, what have you been working on really hard over the years to become a better leader? As because it doesn't come naturally to you. Probably uh, giving more praise. I think it's probably first my uh, own like personal uh, way of, of how I live, but also actually pretty much ingrained in, in Estonians broadly, which is that we're very focused on the, on the negative aspects of things and, and very focused on, hey, this is wrong, that is wrong, how do we fix that? Like very focused on the problems uh, and not enough focused on uh, what are the things that are already great and giving praise where it's due. So that's something we really had to get better at as an organization. That's very fair. So you've gone really big into e-scooters, you mentioned. So what do you think that transportation is going to look like in 10 years? Say, you know, in major cities like London, New York, et cetera, for example. Uh, I, I think uh, electric cars are quite overhyped and uh, electric scooters are really underappreciated. When we, again, look at the list of problems that transport is causing, almost every single one of them is caused by private cars. They're not uh, being necessarily caused by uh, non-electric cars. That is only one bit of emissions. But every other aspect of it, in terms of uh, the real estate they take up, the traffic, the parking spaces, the, the accidents, and so on, all of those will be there with electric cars as well. So, so out of this big list of problems, you're only solving one when you switch everything to electric. But uh, there's a far better alternative already here, which is micromobility, which is electric uh, scooters, electric bikes, just regular bikes, mopeds. That is really the future where big, dense cities need to move to. And I don't think it's getting appreciated enough. So, so that's the single biggest area where we are now investing and why we're so bullish on scooters as well. Amazing. Marcus, thank you so much. It's been great to hear the story of Bolt. And I'm looking forward to continuing to watch the meteoric rise of the company. So massive congratulations to you so far. Looking forward to the next decade. I appreciate it. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. It was a pretty dark time, if I'm being honest. I mean, I, I, I had definitely was having a nervous breakdown, without a shadow of a doubt. I kind of lost who I was at that time. I'd lost all sense of direction. I, I couldn't get up in the morning. I found it really hard getting to work. I'd have panic attacks before going into work. This is the company that a year and a half earlier, I was skipping into work and just was so excited about everything. The world was our oyster. Next week is Kuba Wiktorek, the co-founder of the UK's fastest ever company to start and go public, Eve Sleep. Inside just two years, and we unpack all the mental health struggles and pains that come from that. Tune in or you'll miss out.
If you've enjoyed this episode and you don't want to miss out on more just like it, then please get your phone out and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And if you can think of someone who'd really benefit from what you've just heard, then why not share the episode with them so they can also learn something new today as well. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.